The world is talking. World Talk Radio, Studio A. We'll be back in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio with Abraham Lincoln's nomination in 1860. Stay with us for more Civil War Talk Radio. When I was 12, my father was killed in an industrial accident at a vacant lot where he worked. My mother insisted I stay in the highway on-ramp to get an education. So she took a job uh, waiting tables at a parking garage to support us. She worked double shifts, and on her break, she would pick me up from the highway on-ramp and drop me off at the big office building, and I'd spend hours and hours just reading books. I remember every Saturday we'd have breakfast at the parking garage. And I'd tell her what I had read. And her eyes would just light up. <laughs> because she knew I'd end up in college, not working at the vacant lot. Like my dad. When we lose a historic place, we lose a part of who we are. To learn how you can help protect places in your community, visit nationaltrust.org. History is in our hands. A message brought to you by the National Trust for Historic Preservation and the Ad Council. Hey, y'all. This is Stephen Cochran. As a country artist, I have traveled around this great country of ours, often meeting our brave men and women in uniform. And as a Marine and veteran of both the Iraq and Afghan conflict, I know how important it is to thank our troops who defend our freedom each and every day. One of the best ways to thank them is to give their children and spouses the gift of education. Scholarships for two years, four years, and vocational school. This is exactly what a national charity, Thanks USA, does. Please go to their website, www.thanksusa.org, to make a generous donation to the Thanks USA Scholarship Fund for the families of the troops, and I thank you. Listen. The world is talking. World Talk Radio. Studio A. Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Gary Eckelbarger. We're discussing his recent book, Three Days in the Shenandoah. As we talk, it's September 2008, and Tropical Storm, or maybe Hurricane Hannah, is approaching eastern North Carolina, and I'm delighted to announce my resourceful daughter has just shown up here at Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters, uh, having gotten a ride, so she's not looking like a drowned rat, as I had feared would be the case. Uh, so all is well here. We ended uh, the last segment talking about a, a question that had bothered me a little bit in reading not just this book, but a lot of Civil War books, which is their, the way in which they choose to present the violence that is inherent, that is the very nature of, of, of combat in the Civil War or any war. Uh, obviously, no one endorses that violence uh, as, as a good thing. To ignore it or leave it out would be to sanitize the writing and make it uh, unacceptable in one direction, to portray it in all its full horror of every casualty, every widow, every orphan, uh, would be equally unreadable and unacceptable. So where does the line fall in between? And there, were, there are some books that, that, uh, that, that trouble me in, in, in the sense that the violence is being presented almost voyeuristically, that... that uh, there's a certain relish the author seems to take in presenting particularly gruesome incidents uh, that that the reader is supposed to uh, enjoy. I don't know. Uh, 
there are slasher movies where, where victims are killed hideously on screen and, and audiences like this. Uh, but you know it's false. With Civil War writing, you don't know it's false. You know it's true. But uh, in answer to this, Gary, you pointed out, at least in the case of, of the, the, the cavalry attack that you did describe in very uh, vivid detail, that this was an important, you were making an important point, and it's one that honestly escaped me, uh, which is that Civil War cavalry charges were not, mounted charges were, are presented by most historians as, as futile and old-fashioned and unsuccessful. Right. And you present one that is successful. Right, and you see how I put it in a chapter called A Tale of Two Cavalry Attacks. I talked about one that failed, uh, which is the norm, <laughs> and one mm -hmm. that, then one that succeeded. And to show how it succeeded, I had, I had to go into the details to, to show that that element uh, was one of the reasons why it succeeded. And especially I, with, uh, when you're dealing with Banks' army in my book, you're, uh, you're dealing with soldiers that are the most... Um, uh, the most inexperienced veterans of the war. They've been in the they've been in the war since uh, uh, for a little over a year, and none of them had had been in a battle before. So, um, so I, I said that the violence that I put in there. When it, if it troubles you as the reader, imagine what it does to these soldiers who have never seen a battle to see um, to see one of their mates uh, all of a sudden get hit by a shell and and have an arm taken off. I mean that's that's really. Uh, when you're writing from it, if you're writing about the details of a battle, it's almost it, it's almost uh, a necessity to put that in. Now, I've written books about biographies about Civil War generals, and when I'm describing battles um, that the general's participating in, because I'm taking it from the general's perspective, I'm not uh, I'm not going into that kind of uh, gruesome detail unless it's something that happens to the general or something that affects the general. So, it's really the point of view that you're taking when you're writing the book. And I also think that the size of the battles um, also uh, dictate if you're going to be writing about it in that fine of detail. These are small battles that deal with regiments against regiments, so um, I talk about individual soldiers simply because it, it's uh, uh, I'm, I'm able to do that because the battles I'm dealing with are pretty small. Now, I, I think that... Uh... That makes a lot of sense. I've done the same thing in, in, in writing about the Army of the Ohio uh, at Shiloh, for example. I recall there was a uh, when the regiments are back at Pittsburgh Landing, driven back on the first day, uh, the Union regiments are driven back by the Confederates to the water's edge. There's a new regiment uh, lined up, and one of the soldiers is, is, I think, decapitated by a solid shot from a Confederate cannon, and the entire line visibly ripples back in horror at their... Oh, yeah, their six, uh, six Indiana soldier, I believe. I think that that's correct. So, yeah, so I there did an article on that, uh, on that same soldier. Because uh, that, 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 that beheading... See, we both know the same story. That's, we know the same story. But, because but, it had such an impact on the entire unit. So. Well, exactly. It, it, it was not gratuitous. Uh, uh, it, was, it, it was meaningful. <laughs> Going back to the, the, the same uh, argument, uh, uh, my perhaps now tortured analogy of... Uh, uh, Playboy magazine. People say, "Well, I'll, I won't do a nude scene in a movie unless it's you know, artistically necessary." Um, you, you, I think, and I would not put violence in a, a book unless it is historically necessary, uh, where it tells a bigger story. And I guess I would argue, uh, why not tell the reader about the cavalry charge? Uh, about the context of it, that you're saying here's one that succeeds, unlike most. Uh, or am I asking for a, more of a dissertation-style writing, and you're 
right. You're and, telling and a story. I think you are in that one, yeah, because okay. um, uh, because then it changes the whole. You know, this has uh, from the writer's standpoint, my book has a narrative flow to it, hmm. and I try to keep some of the analysis, at least with source material, within the source notes. So all of a sudden, to switch gears and to change it into a more uh, thesis-oriented uh, approach to that chapter would would just change the whole style of writing. So, so I really wanted to kind of keep it consistent as I wrote it through. Yeah, it, it's asking you to write a whole different kind of book, right. and nothing right. authors like less than a critic who you know wants them to write a different book. Right. Well, besides, I only read Playboy for the articles, so you should. <laughs> I was planning to use that line at some point. <laughs> uh, you beat me to it. Well done. Uh, Speaking of different books, let, let's change gears. We've, we've still got a few minutes here. Uh, your new book, which ha- has just come out or is about to come out? It just came out. The just publisher out. put it, uh, it's about the 1860 Republican nomination, and they put it out during the uh, 2008 Republican uh, convention. So pretty good timing on their good part. Timing there. What's the title of the book? It's called The Great Comeback, how, and the subtitle is How Abraham Lincoln Beat the Odds to Win the 1860 Republican nomination. It's uh, published by uh, St. Martin's Press, the Thomas Dunn Books uh, division of them, and uh, just came out a couple days ago. The the obvious question, it's one I've been asked about, did Lincoln own slaves? So I'll ask it you about your book. Why on earth another book about Abraham Lincoln? Well, when I started, I thought I was going to be the first person to write a book about Abraham Lincoln, so go figure. Yeah, <laughs> and the 10,000 got ahead of you. <laughs> yeah, 10 or 15,000, yeah. So obviously, once again, when we get to a, a person who's going to, when you're going to write a book, um, aside from defining who you think your audience is going to be, it's, uh, it's make sure you're going to add something to the literature instead of repeat it. Exactly. And I was really confident I had, a, I had something unique. This is a writer's dream, a new story about Abraham Lincoln, because... Like my other books, I approached it by asking a question. And here's the question I asked. How does a two-time Senate loser with minimal national experience win his party's nomination within a year and a half of the second Senate defeat? Now, that's only happened once in our history. And the fact that it happened to Abraham Lincoln, I think, has obscured the question because we always perceive Lincoln's greatness and and really, if you just go back to the to the to the raw question, it's a phenomenal story. Whoever it happens to, but the fact that it happens to Abraham Lincoln makes it an all important question. But at the same time, Lincoln's fame, I think, has obscured the question. So, are you saying there are no other books directly on this topic? That yes, the closest one is um, uh, Beringer's book, Lincoln's Rise to Power, which broadens the topic and is kind of written in the 1930s style with a lot of block quotes, etc. Mine has a different uh, uh, approach to it, but I only pick up the story from the eve of the second Senate defeat, the Douglas Senate defeat, and I take it and end it at the nomination because, as you know, because the Democratic Party splits, um, within weeks of the nomination, Lincoln is convinced four months before the election that he's won the thing. So the, the nomination is uh, the zenith of the campaign, so that's where I end the book. I, I gather it's not out yet, then. I, I read a manuscript for another author who's written on almost the identical topic. Well, I hope uh, I beat him then. <laughs> you, you're the first one in print, um, obviously. So uh, congratulations on doing that. Ooh, I didn't know about that. <laughs> uh, I... I probably shouldn't say any more. Okay, no, that's better uh, right. But, uh, <laughs> well, that um, happens, you know. It's hard. You're the first one out, so 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 you've done the job. Well done. 
Well, you um, know, when authors research their books, it's hard to know what's in press <laughs> unless oh, you get inside information. Um, you only know what, what's already, if you do your job, you know it's already published, and, and that's what you're basing it on. So, There was, uh, you may recall when Sherman, uh, uh, there was a year when like six biographies of Sherman appeared in the same year. Yeah. Uh, um, you I know, know Kenneth and... and, and uh, Happened to Grant, uh, too, in a three yeah. period. So, so that that's got to be difficult for an author to watch these. Well, especially this time because I mean, I did I didn't plan the book to come out during the convention. Mm-hmm. I did plan it to come out in 2008, though, because it is the first of the it's the first year of that two year Lincoln bicentennial period. That's right. And so I did I did plan that to happen, and of course I know that there's going to be a flood of of Lincoln books out in that period. So. Um, well, they're they're already upon us. I can tell you that. Right. Um, right. Let, uh, without spoiling the surprise ending, uh, well, Lincoln does... wins. I think we all. Know. <laughs> oh, dang! <laughs> how does Lincoln get the nomination? Given that he is, as you say, a two-term electoral loser running for Senate, limited national experience. Well, what no I discovered the the main thing that I discovered is that it it wasn't an accidental candidacy, uh, and the audience should know that at that time there were no primaries and caucuses, so the, mm-hmm. the convention was the be-all, end-all event. And in 1860, there will be 12 candidates getting votes. And the irony is one of, one of those candidates was the Supreme Court Justice, the man in the 70s named John McClain. Go figure. Um, but Lincoln uh, has, to, has to at least be um, prominent enough to be uh, an official candidate, and he actually works on that over a six-month period. Uh, when he comes back to politics in 1854, for five years, he gives a lot of speeches, but only one outside the state of Illinois. Yet in six months, uh, between September of 59 and March of 60, he gives 30 speeches in eight different states. So clearly he's trying to increase his national attention uh, to be a candidate for the presidency, and it works beautifully. He gets uh, coast-to-coast coverage of his speeches, um, not sharing the stage with Stephen Douglas in an off-election year, he gets a lot of attention, and uh, that at least makes him a viable candidate. And then the real, the, the real story of how he wins it uh, has to, a lot to deal with the, the middle ground message that uh, at least keeps him away from the radical perceptions of other of the top candidates. And, of course, it's his team of supporters that uh, accomplish nearly the impossible and uh, talk up Lincoln with the other delegations and and um, and work in that dramatic convention to uh, get Lincoln over the top at the end of the third round. The uh, at the at the risk of asking a question that will be dated uh, in a few months, do people you talk to about this uh, assume or accuse you of trying to imply something about the current electoral campaign? Uh, no, in fact, they ask <laughs> when they ask. I try to. Uh, I, I usually try to bend over uh, backwards as much as I can not to get uh, uh, too much modern influence involved. But I, I, have, I have perfect immunity because that manuscript was done before the um, months before the Iowa caucus of this current election cycle. So, uh, um, so at least uh, I can claim that uh, the ma- I was not influenced at all by this uh, current crop of um, uh, Republicans and Democrats. So. And, and that probably works to the benefit there. Well, I, I have not seen the new book, which is just out, but I look forward to reading it. I enjoyed Three Days in the Shenandoah. Oh, thank you. Uh, and Gary Eckelbarger, thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Jerry, for having me on.
and listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Talking World Talk Radio Studio A. 